Well, I'm so glad to be back on Wednesday night. You, I can't tell you how glad I am to be back because you ever made a mistake when you're talking? Never. Okay, good. Yes, right. And um, I don't know why. I know there's five books of the Psalms. I know there's five books except for one thing in my defense. In my indices here, it says there's four books in my Bible. Not in the scriptures itself, but in one of the indexes or indices. And here I am, I'm going, oh, yeah, five books. And I look down and it says, oh, no, fourth book. I'm like, oh, so I got messed up. And there are five books of the book of Psalms. And we are uh, starting down that road. We did 107, 108, and 109 last week. One thing I didn't mention about 109, but I want to mention to you now, is that this is, uh, has a prophetic reference in here, most people believe, in chapter, verse 8 of 109. Not most people believe, it's, uh, anyway, uh, of, of Judas. And uh, in Acts 120, it's referred to, let his days be few and let another take his office. And so I uh, neglected to tell you all that. And uh, I think somebody even uh, mentioned it afterwards, but... Um, Anyway, uh, see, so people make mistakes, and God bless you guys for being so merciful. So uh, turn over to Psalm 110. As we uh, travel through the Psalms, what, what are we doing? I mean, don't you want to know what you're doing? Well, first of all, we're taking in the Word of God, the Holy Word of God, and all of it is inspired and wonderful and able to do so many things in our lives, salvation, and uh, exhortation, and uh, encouragement, and sharpening, and uh, making us uh, Christ-like, and the Holy Spirit comes as we take in the Word of God and does something to us when we obey. It's just amazing. And so uh, uh, I'm passionate about it because uh, I showed up in, the, in a theater in downtown Honolulu one 8.30 in the morning. Now, for me to get up at Sunday at 8.30 in the morning in my state in which I was living at the time is a miracle in itself. And the Lord must have had something to do with it. Of course he did. And this man, this pastor, Pastor Bill Stonebreaker, opened up his books, opened up his Bible, excuse me, and he was teaching the Psalms at the time. And he just opened it up and he started going verse by verse. And all I can say is just like this, my heart, like a jigsaw puzzle, went click, I couldn't believe that somebody <laughs> actually studied through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I had no bringing up in, a, in, in such a, a tradition. And uh, my whole life, I was searching for the Lord. I re- used to read the Bible. Nobody in my family was equipped to talk to me about it, really, that much. I hope they're not listening. But anyway, and uh, uh, so I would search TV. And I don't know if you've been on Christian TV, but you can get some wacky stuff on Christian TV. And I would watch it. And uh, one time when I was about in, in 12th grade or so, I was flipping through uh, TV. And, uh, you know, I was watching Tim, uh, Jim, Jim and Tammy Faye. And I was watching you know, I mean, all the stuff because I was hoping that somebody would be able to expound the scriptures. And you, I just couldn't. Just nothing. And I'd read. And and one day, this guy with sort of a mullet and sort of thinning on top and a polo shirt and jeans comes on the TV in my 12th grade year, and he starts going through the Bible 
And I was like, whoa. And I forgot to catch his name. And, you know, it was the era of VCR, maybe not even VCR at that time. But anyway, uh, and I never caught who it was and never saw him again. And so I went to college four years. I went to law school for four years. Jan and I get married. And after two and a half years, I just throw away a legal career and move to Hawaii to coach football. And uh, I think I'm there. No kidding. Honestly, no kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I went there to be famous. I was going to be famous. In fact, uh, the first game I ever coached in, Kirk Herbstreet, who's the major announcer for college football, it was his first assignment. I showed him around. I mean, Lou Holtz, Pete Carroll, uh, Joe Montana, Bill Walsh, we would meet them all, and I was going to be famous. And then about two or three weeks into my time in Hawaii, the most famous guy or one of the most famous sports figures in Hawaii and his wife saw me in the office and said, hey, you want to come to church with me this weekend? Now, listen, I had this background of searching, so I had that in there. But I mean, the most famous sports guy in Hawaii is going to invite me to church. Well, of course, I'm going to do that. And so I go to this church, and that's when my jigsaw puzzle moment happened in my heart. But about three weeks or four weeks later, I'm attending the church, 8.30 in the morning, downtown Honolulu. And we get in there and we do the worship and the pastor comes out and he says, we have a special announcement uh, today and the screen comes down and I'm sitting there just sort of groggy and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, I'll never forget it. This guy starts talking with a thinning hair on top and sort of a mullet and a polo. It had been about eight or nine years since I'd seen him on TV, and that person is Greg Laurie. And I just, the Lord was just doing something in my heart, and the reason I'm telling you that story is not to glorify myself, but to glorify the Lord, that he'll chase you down. And then, for the next four years, I go to be famous, and the Lord takes us to Calvary, Honolulu, and we just, my wife and I, we just would go home at night and we would just take the, the tapes, little cassette tapes, and we would just go through the Bible and we'd fill up. And the Lord just used the word of God to change my life in such a big way that we we're just so passionate to teach you and to not just teach you, but to engage with you uh, the scriptures as we move through the entire Bible. And so I tell you that story because... I don't want us to ever just get tired. I know we're on 110. There's 150. This takes a long time. This isn't easy. I know it's not. But the Lord can do amazing things through his word. And we come now to one of the most famous psalms in all of the psalms. And that's 110, Psalm 110. And uh, you see this psalm, uh, in many places. In fact, uh, uh, Boyce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, is it Montgomery? Yeah, James Montgomery Boyce, who used to be the pastor at 10th Street Presbyterian in Philly, a very famous church. He says in, uh, in his commentary that he counts 27 allusions to Psalm 110 in the New Testament, which means that if that's true, which I think it is, don't have any reason to doubt it, that would be the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament, or alluding to it, okay? And actually, as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've already encountered uh, this 
psalm, this psalm, in Acts 2, 34 and 35, at the end of a sermon when Peter was driving home the charge that the Jews had murdered their own. And uh, so you find it there. And it's interesting because Jesus comments about it in Matthew and says that David, when he was writing the psalm, was speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. And it's quoted in Hebrews to confirm uh, lots of things, uh, that Christ especially is far superior to angels. And uh, if you want to see just basically a commentary on uh, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, well what you would do is you'd just go to Hebrews 7, and the back half of Hebrews 7 is almost like a commentary to what we're going to study tonight. So here's the point I'm sort of telling you. Every once in a while, you come across one of the Psalms or a piece of Scripture that you want to know thoroughly. If you know this Psalm thoroughly, it's going to take you into different areas of the Bible, and you're going to have a big framework uh, uh, for what the Old Testament and what the New Testament is all about. I'm convinced of it. Why do I say that? Well, watch this. David, a Psalm of David, Psalm 110. I want you to catch this. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. And it's almost, if you would think of it like this, on this side is Yahweh. This is how I think of it. In the middle is David. <laughs> and Adonai is over here. It's just by the structure. The Lord said to my, who's my? David, the Lord over here, the father. Of course, the father's up there. He's above David. I don't mean it in any blasphemous way. I'm just saying David's in the middle. And the point of that, what I'm trying to say is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, watch this. David's in on a conversation between the Father and the Son. That's what this is. Isn't that incredible? We're taken right into the very heart of the Trinity here. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, distinct but the same, Adonai. Are you catching it? And David's there, and he has been given privy to this somehow, and by the power of the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Oh, now, wait a second. The Father is saying to Adonai, this one, sit at my right hand. Who sits at the right hand of the Father? Jesus does, right? And so you have something going on here that's really seriously Deep, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I think you need to know this. This is why I'm, I love this psalm. It takes you to a lot of different places of the Bible if you truly want to understand what's going on here. For instance... You should know 2 Samuel 7. Just write it down beside the psalm. In order to understand the Lord said to my Lord and the impact that it should have in our lives, and it had 
for those who were listening at the time, you would want to know 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I'm going to read you a little commentary by John Phillips about this 2 Samuel 7 verse as it relates to Psalm 110. You ready? Stay with me. I know I'm not supposed to read in long batches, but just hang with me. It says this, when Nathan first came to David with the promise of a magnificent dynasty, what is David being promised by the Lord in 2 Samuel 7? He's being promised the eternal throne or kingdom, right? You know this. And he makes a covenant with him, of course. And he says, Phillips here says, when Nathan first came to David with the promise of a magnificent dynasty, he expressly told him, watch, this is important, that the Messiah would not come in David's lifetime. And when the days be fulfilled and they shall sleep with thy fathers, 2 Samuel 7, 12, uh, and uh, when the days be fulfilled and that you will sleep with the fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of in the King James, your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and the kingdom shall be established forever. In other words, I want you to see this, that the Messiah would be born in the line of David. Are you catching that? Which is like a human line. Everybody with me? That's important to know first. The Lord said to my Lord, that's what we're uh, studying. So this covenantal promise, watch this, was to happen after David's death. Now here, I'm going to read from Phillips because he puts it perfectly. But a dead father can't render allegiance to a living son. And a living son can't exercise lordship over a dead father. Yet here was Jehovah talking to Adonai with David calling Adonai my Adonai, my ruler. Adonai was to be David's son. Listen, this is the point. Adonai was to be David's son, but also David's sovereign. So David himself was to be dead, although David himself was to be dead. Here we surely have one of those prophetic utterances of which uh, Peter spoke when he said that the, uh, the prophets searched diligently what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them to signify. Now just indulge me here for a second. Okay? I know. You're, you don't like it when I read. I get it. I've been to the classes, but I got to read you this. I should have put it out here for you to have. We can see David scratching his head, bewildered over this statement. He's hearing the father to the son say, the Lord said to my Lord, and here you see David scratching his head. Why would David be scratching his head? If David, being dead, was to have a son who would be at the same time acknowledged by him as his Lord, that, watch it, this is, then David must live again. The first oracle of this psalm, its opening prophetic announcement, carried David over to resurrection power. Amazing. He had barely grasped the astounding fact before the words flowed again from his spirit-enlightened mind. The Lord said unto my Lord, 
sit on my right hand and make thine enemies thy footstool. David knew that the promised Messiah would sit on his throne. Nathan had told him so, but here there's something new. The coming Messiah, that one who was to be his son, would actually sit with Jehovah on his throne. That's the point of this story. Not only did he know that his son would be the king, or the son would be the king, there you go, (laughs) out of his line, but that the king would sit on the throne with Yahweh. Oh, come on. That's the best I got for tonight. I mean, that's amazing. See, to us, no big deal, because we sit on this side of it. To David, to the ones who were living at the time, this is mind-blowing stuff that a person who was going to be born to a human would actually, and, and become, after David died, would actually be David's sovereign and sit on the throne with Yahweh. That is incredible. And so this psalm is very powerful, and people know it. The writers knew it. And here, we have some friends in the, in the community, and we have some friends who attend here. And my father, in fact, was a Jehovah's Witness. And they're always searching for where you see the divinity of Christ and the Messiah. Well, here's one powerful place in the Old Testament that the Lord said is the right thing. I mean, the Lord said to my Lord, it's just so packed full of implications that we could go on for a month of Sundays about this one. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. And the Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion. The rod of your strength. I mean, this one is going to be the rod of his strength coming out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, out of the holy city. And he's to rule in the midst of your enemies. Remember, this is a conversation between the father and the son that David's overhearing. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in one hand, we recognize that for Israel, right, God made their enemies his footstool in the sense that he brought them into the promised land. But there's coming a time, and we're going to see it at the end of this psalm, in the campaign of Armageddon, I think, where... Christ is going to come back and judge, and judge the nations, and a lot of other things. And he's going to make his enemies his footstool. And he's going to do it with a rod of iron, this rod, this strength out of his iron, and he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. I want you to come so bad to Jerusalem or Israel. I want you to come so bad. You could. When I was a kid, I just would open up maps, and I would just trace when I was little. Man, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. And you can get these maps out. We have that great map book called the uh, uh, Bible Satellite Atlas. If you don't have the Bible Satellite Atlas, get it, man. It goes verse by verse. It's kind of expensive, but 
It's great. It's in like the 20s or 30 bucks, but it's great. And one of the things that you can see is this place called the Jezreel Valley. And you sort of, it's north of Jerusalem and it's up there some and you can see sort of heading towards Nazareth out that way and it's sort of like a triangular valley. And you go up on Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, and you look out over this valley and you go, oh, wow, a lot of people could fit in this valley. And so what I'm saying there is there's going to be armies upon armies in these areas and the Lord is going to rule in the midst of our enemies or his enemies. And here's one thing that just excites me when I read something like that. I have no idea how big and powerful and majestic our God is sometimes. I look out over the Jezreel Valley and go, really? There's going to be that? In that place, they're going to fill it up with armies? Oh, and the Lord's going to speak the word and boom. And he's going to be ruling in the midst of enemies? He's big and powerful, and his ways will get done, <laughs> will prevail. Watch this. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And then you go over to verse 4 and you go, uh-oh, here's another place where if you understand what's happening in verse 4, you'll really be a blessed Bible student. Because in verse 4, it says that the Lord is sworn and will not relent that you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And sometimes when we're reading through that, we go, oh yeah, okay. Melchizedek sort of sounds familiar. And the first part of this psalm up to here it dealt with the Lord and his kingship, his sovereignty. But now we're going to look at him in a different way. We're going to look at him as the eternal priest. And so where do we encounter Melchizedek? Well, turn back to G Genesis 14. Go there. And this will be good for you, uh, all of us. Go back to Genesis 14. Uh, And you, Lot had been capped, uh, taken captive, and he was rescued by, uh, uh, you know, his uncle. And uh, anyway, he's rescued. And then all of a sudden, you're just sort of doing your one-year Bible. You're just kind of going along, and it's just so fun and wonderful and, you know, all that sort of thing. And you get there, and then all of a sudden in verse 18, just out of nowhere, just sort of out of the air, it says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Who is this one that brings out bread and wine? And he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. Well, wait a minute. Abraham's the host. Why is this guy, Melchizedek, like the one conducting the meal here. 
He's the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe. What? He's given a tithe. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And off you go. And you sort of don't really talk about him too much there until you get to Psalm 110. And the writer here in the one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament is first focusing on Jesus as king, and now he's going to focus on Jesus or the Messiah as priest. And the Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He's going to judge among the nations. He's going to fill the places with dead bodies. Valley of Megiddo. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He'll drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. But what's this about the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever. Why does it matter? What is all that about? Well, this is describing again the messianic nature of Jesus and his future rule with an emphasis here. He's emphasizing here Melchizedek's eternality. You can see, I think that that appearance back there in Genesis 14 is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You don't have to think that, but you can think it's representative if you want, but I think it's a Christophany, and the thread runs throughout the Psalms, that there's something important about the one who is to come, who's king, watch, but who's also priest. Now, do you know this in the Old Testament? The, the offices of king and priest and prophet weren't supposed to be combined. You remember this, right? Remember? Saul got into trouble with some of this stuff, but they weren't supposed to be combined. But now we're starting to see that David, as he's overhearing a conversation between the father and the son, is seeing one who's both king and priest. Melchizedek the priest? And how do I know that? Well, I just sort of read. Because over in Hebrews 7, go there if you want. Hebrews 7. Oh, good. I turned right to it. Uh, verse 1, Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, you're like, what? This is strung throughout the entire Bible. This is why I love this psalm for both me and for us. Because it, it orients us all the way through the Bible, from Genesis all the way through Hebrews, and then even into the book of Revelation, in my opinion, when he's talking about the Valley of Megiddo. But anyway, here it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most Holy God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem which means king of peace. To me, it's obvious who that one is. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, have neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest. 
continually. You see that? And when you go over to verse 11, go over there. I know this is long, but hang in here. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? In other words, the old system didn't make anyone perfect or give righteousness, right? It pointed people to a savior, of course. Of course it did. According to the order of Melchizedek. And not be called according to the order of Aaron. Who were the Levitical priests? Levites, Aaron, remember that? They were from that line. Watch this. Hang in here for a minute. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. Where was Jesus from? What tribe? Judah. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Do you know what this would do to a Jewish person who was back then, or who, who lived back then, who was watching this stuff? Wait a minute. It's got to be from Aaron. It's got to be from Aaron. It's got to be from Aaron. And Jesus is doing something new. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power. Oh my gosh. See, this is why I just want to jump up and down right here. This is it. (laughs) It's according to the power, think of it, of an endless life. This isn't all there is. He died and rose again. He's the first fruit. That means there's more fruit to come, and we're the fruits. That's a joke. And we're going to go. And it's according to the power of an endless life. Eternal. And he's powerful. Because why? For he testifies, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitability profitableness uh, for the law made nothing perfect on the other hand there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God and we could go on and on and on Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant there it says in 22 an unchangeable priesthood isn't it interesting I mean just uh, it just comes into my mind what year could you be a, what year of your life could you be a priest? 30. You could serve till when? 50. So you only had about 20 years there to do your work. So for us, when we read this, that doesn't make any sense to me. When they read it, what do you mean? There's no unchangeable priest. We don't have to change out the priests. They come and go. We just need one. He's holy, verse 26, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become higher than the heaven, who does not need daily as the other high priest to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for his people. Watch this. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Why would you come to southwestern PA in this little hamlet, this little borough, on a Wednesday night in 70-degree weather? Because of that right there. Because that's true. 
And you and I and we want to lift up the name of Jesus. And we found community here. Not that this is the end all and the be all. But we found community here in which to do it. And we want to come in here and we don't want to just talk about the Cubs or the Pirates or whatever we talk about or, you know, things. We want to talk about he once for all offered himself up. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. And you could go on and on. We could read. We just keep reading all the way through 10, all the way through 11, and we'd be totally blessed when we come now back and flip to Psalm 110, we, get, we have all of this backdrop and we go, wow. The Father and the Son are speaking about it and David by the Holy Spirit gets in on the conversation and speaks of his sovereignty, his kingship, but he also speaks of his priesthood, the priesthood forever, Jesus Christ. Remember, in the Old Testament, the offices couldn't meet, but in Jesus, he's perfect. And that can happen. And what does a priesthood do? We know that a king rules. My, if my family are here, they make fun of me because I just say it all the time. A priest just takes God's hand and man's hand and brings them together. But really, there's only one priest that can do it. <laughs> and that's Jesus. Because there's one mediator between God and man. In other words, you guys, we, we can come close by the blood. We can pray while we're shaving. We can be in our car and pray by the blood. We don't have to march down to a temple and have and all the blood drain out. And we don't have to be here. Or we, It's great to come and be assembled on Sundays. and, and get. But, but we can pray because we're close by the blood. And that's powerful. Jesus brings man to God and God to man. And there, is there anything better than that? Priesthood. And he follows it up with the, how powerful it's going to be in the last days. When he executes kings in the day of his wrath, judges the nations, fills the places with dead body. But I want you to see something. But he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, and therefore he's going to lift up his head. As the armies are being defeated there, it's as if the Messiah... Jesus, our Lord and Savior, goes over to the brook, the stream, and drinks in celebration. Not in celebration of killing or anything like that, but that God's plans have come to fruition, and he's refreshed at the brook as all of this is going on. It's incredible. Well, we switch a little bit in Psalm 111. We could do this. These, these, oftentimes, remember I told you, the Psalms aren't in chronology or chronological order or in some sort of pattern. Not really. But Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are, and I'm going to show you how. Remind me at the end. First thing is, each one's an acrostic. You understand what that is. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each succeeding verse starts with the next letter of the alphabet, except... Uh, in Psalm 111 here, 
I don't believe praise the Lord is the first uh, letter of the alphabet. It happens after that. Uh, wait a minute, Psalm 111. Yeah, praise the Lord, right. So listen to this. Praise the Lord. God is worthy to be praised. Watch this. Before you decide to praise the Lord. Read it with me. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart, an undivided heart. Don't, isn't that one of your prayers for 2023? It's one of my prayers. Lord, just help me to have an undivided heart. My heart can get so divided. Statistics in sports, uh, this sort of thing that I like to do, and that sort of thing that I like to do, and this sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies and all that sort of thing. I'm not saying you need relaxation, etc. But my heart can be so divided. And here, I love the psalm because, look, just praise the Lord even before you even have decided to praise the Lord. Why? Because he's worthy to be praised. That's the point of what's happening right there. Whether he did anything you consider good for you or not, He's worthy to be praised just because of who he is. That's what it says here. I will or praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart, an undivided heart. Spurgeon says God, he says it doesn't say it exactly these words, but something like it. God can't be uh, uh, acceptably praised with a half divided heart. Take that for what, what it is. All right. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. In other words, he says, I'm going to praise the Lord because he's so amazing in public, in an assembly, a smaller gathering, and then in the congregation, a bigger gathering. And here's what I'm going to talk about. The works of the Lord are great. Isn't this fascinating, this next verse? Studied by all who have pleasure in them. Think of the people who study the Lord and are doing a ministry, theologians, of course, archaeologists. Name every scientist. I don't know science very well, but you name every science. Molecular biology, people are studying about it. Brain sort of things, people are studying about it and how it relates and points to God. And on and on and on and on. Artists point to God. I mean, music, art. The works of the Lord are gate and are studied by all who have pleasure in them. You can bless the Lord, in other words, in all your different pursuits and occupations. Isn't that great? So his work is honorable and glorious. By the way here, the psalmist is using a different word every time he says work. So when it says the works of the Lord are great, that's one word. That's the big word that encompasses lots of them. But then he says his work is honorable and, uh, uh, oh, I just lost it, and glorious. And that word means providential. He provides the way in which he provides. That's a great work. And then watch, and has made his wonderful works, or in his righteousness endures forever. And then it says, and he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. And that word means the wonders that God does. Those great saving acts of God. That's the word he uses there. So all these different ways in which 
We're to bless the Lord, and the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Of course he is. He In what? He gives food to those who fear him. He'll never ever be mindful of his covenant. He's declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth or verity and justice, the things that he does. All his precepts are sure. Hold on to the promises and pray them and believe them. You want to be a mature Christian? Grab his promises, pray them and believe them and act accordingly by the power of the Spirit. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. Praise the Lord, he sent redemption. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome, by the way. Awesome there is like reverential. So don't ever call me a reverend. No kidding. I'm not joking around. No way. No reverend. <laughs> There's only one who's reverend or reverential or who's awesome. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Spurgeon said on this verse, our obedience to God proves our judgment is sound. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, Psalm 112, and we'll wrap it up. And listen, when we get done with this psalm, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to turn on some music. We're, I don't think we're going to play it. We're going to play some music here. And I'm telling you this now because I want you to prepare your hearts for this. We put communion in the back. And so for about five, seven minutes, Whenever you feel like it, bowing your head, praising the Lord, at doing business with the Lord here at the end, you're just going to get up, grab a cup, come back to your seat, take communion, and then when everybody's done, we'll say a prayer and go out, okay? But I want you to see this last psalm. I'll go fast. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. There it is again. That's not the acronym. But the Lord is worthy to be praised just because he's the Lord, who he is. And then he goes into the acronym, and this is interesting. He talked in Psalm 111 in the acronym Psalm about how the wonderful works of God. And now in Psalm 112, he's going to show us one who follows the Lord what his or her life is to be. But not on your own strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what your life is to be, my life. Blessed is the man or woman who fears the Lord. What's the first thing that marks a person who becomes mature and growing in Christ? They fear God. And man, Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts. Who? Sin is serious. But we're God-fearing people. That's what we do. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And the reason we fear the Lord, because he is worthy to be feared, in a sense. We have this reverential awe. Watch this. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Happy is the woman who fears the Lord, number one, who delights greatly in his commandments, who loves God's word. Not just, eh, loves it and wants to pour through it. His descendants... Who his descendants are going to be mighty on the earth, upright. 
There's going to be a fruit in people's lives, and they're going to lead to other people having upright lives. Now, that could be biological kids, but some people might not have biological kids, and that's okay. You're not lesser. But what you're going to do is you're going to have descendants, so to speak, from the people that you share with and that you love and that you disciple. And that's mighty and powerful. The generation, you're going to lead to this generation of the upright who's going to be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness is endures forever. You're going to be prosperous. I don't know about financially, but I do know spiritually. You're going to just, your cup is going to run over. And there might be tough and difficult times. Yes, they're all coming because we live in this fallen world. But your belly, your heart, your soul is going to be bubbling up with Holy Spirit love and forgiveness and steadfastness and self-control. And you're going to be prosperous. And to the upright, there arises light in the darkness. He's gracious, this one. Are you gracious? Am I gracious? I'm too sarcastic sometimes to be gracious, but pray for me. But gracious, are you gracious? Am I gracious? Lord, help us to be gracious and full of compassion and righteous, doing right things by your spirit and power. A good man or woman deals graciously and lends that we're generous people. He will guide his affairs with discretion, which means with wisdom and good judgment. Are you a person that's impetuous? You fly and just do things and you look back and go, why did I do that? Put this in your prayer book for this year. Lord, help me to be a person of self-control who guides my affairs with discretion, wisdom, and good judgment. Carefully moving, but moving based on where you show me. Surely he will never be shaken. Oh my. You ever been shaken? When the things, everything's crashing down around you, inside you can never be shaken and the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. In other words, righteous people are worth remembering. (laughs) He won't be afraid of evil tidings. Evil tidings. I mean, come on. Where else do you hear tidings? You hear, huh? Yeah, you hear it at Christmas time all the time. F.B. Meyer said this, there cannot be evil tidings to the soul which has fixed its trust in the Lord. If tidings were to come to you today of disease, loss, bereavement, death, they couldn't be evil if your heart dares, dares to maintain a fixed trust in God. For such trust robs death of its sting and the grave of its victory. I cannot understand, but I can trust Him. F.B. Meyer on evil tidings. You won't be afraid of evil tidings because you're trusting and you're dare to trust in the Lord and your heart will be steadfast trusting in the Lord. Your heart, his heart is established or propped up or made strong by the strength of his maker. That's what that means. He won't be afraid. How often have we been afraid? How often? Raise your hand. I got two of them up here. 
I've been afraid. One time I was going through a very difficult thing with my daughter. Actually, she was wonderful. She's always been wonderful, so it's not her. It wasn't her giving me difficulty or my wife difficulty, but there was a certain group that was giving her much difficulty. And this certain group was sort of famous and sort of nationally known. And here I am, little old me in West Elizabeth, calling these nationally known people and telling them they're off base. And I got to tell you, when I would dial the numbers, I was scared. And one time I called a really famous pastor. You would know him if I told you his name. He actually called me, sorry, he called me to talk to me about the situation. And I told him exactly what I just told you. And you know what he said to me? What are you scared of? I go, well, I'm such a little fish in a big pond. And he goes, yeah, but you follow the Lord. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And that reminds me of that right there. He won't be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. What's that mean? He's generous again and given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His righteousness or his horn will be exalted. What's that mean? His strength will be exalted with honor. In other words, this person is going to have influence. Folks, I'm praying that for us. That as we individually, boom, Ephesians 4, are being built up and equipped for our ministries, that your influence, that your influence, people sometimes ask me, don't you think you need a bigger building or all that sort of thing? And I say, no, 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 no bigger building. Let's raise people up and send them out. Let's, each one of us, have influence wherever we are. Preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and watching the fruit grow right where we're planted. Whatever the Lord has called us to do, have him strengthen us with honor and influence. And the wicked will see it and be grieved. Oh man, I just got to tell you, to my competitive heart, I love that one. <laughs> Pray for me. He will gnash his teeth and melt away, and the desire of the wicked shall perish. Here's what's fascinating before we close. Watch. Psalm 111 here is sat right against Psalm 112. It's as if he's saying, here's the Father and what he's like. And when you surrender and trust your life to the Father by the Son, it fills you with the Holy Spirit, you're going to look like your dad. <laughs> He's going to develop God-like, Christ-like qualities in your life and mature you all in them. And that's what those two psalms are about. Here's what I'd ask you to do. As we bow our heads here, and we're going to ask Gabe to turn on some music. I, I want us to just Think about all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We read through it. He's the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He sits at the, Lord, or at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again to judge the earth. These are the same things I say every time we take communion. And it's right here sitting in a psalm, Psalm 110. 
So you know, you're, you, who can take communion? Anybody who's a member of the body of Christ, not just this church or anything. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Well, you're welcome to take communion then. And what we're going to do is we're just going to pray. In the Bible, Bible, Paul tells us in the Bible to don't take it in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, if there's something that you need to deal with the Lord with while this song's going on, do it. Then go back and take the communion. And when we all have done it, I'm going to come back up and we'll pray this out and go from here. Okay? Go ahead, Gabe. Thank you.